Hello, and welcome to Talking Opinions. I am your host, Anthony Livingston Hall. The way Officer Derek Chauvin used his knee to choke the life out of George Floyd for 9 minutes and 29 seconds shocked and troubled the conscience of white America. Never mind that, white cops killing black men in cold blood has been a feature of life in America since its founding. Indeed, since the advent of smartphones, many of those killings have even been caught on tape. But this is why it speaks volumes that the conscience of white America hasn't been so shocked and troubled since the publication of Uncle Tom's Cabin in 1852. Back then, it was because Harriet Beecher Stowe dramatized so vividly not just the inhuman way whites were treating black slaves, but also the diabolical way slavery was corrupting the souls of white folk. Which of course poses the question, what does it say about racism in America today that more than 150 years since the abolition of slavery, the conscience of white America is still being shocked and troubled by the treatment of black Americans? Frankly, it is self-evident that America lapsed long ago into a vicious cycle of white cops killing black men and thereby triggering a disorderly mix of quixotic protests, nihilistic riots, sociopathic looting, and opportunistic lawsuits. In other words, we keep witnessing the same tragedy reacting the same way, and expecting a different outcome. Crazy. I began a one-man crusade many years ago to break this cycle, but I readily concede that the spate of white cops killing black men over the past year alone would seem to betray the quixotic nature of my own crusade. Indeed, it was the incomprehensible Groundhog Day killing of Dante Wright just days ago that provoked this episode. But I believe my crusade has socially redeeming value, because the message I've been proselytizing from the outset does not conform to the vicious cycle that defines the menace of white cops killing black men. More to the point, despite the tragedies that continually grab national headlines, I remain hopeful that my message is resonating enough to save untold numbers of black lives, and that really is all that matters to me. 
Uh, the first time I formally delivered this message was after the infamous killing of Michael Brown in 2014. But, apropos of resonating, I was heartened to hear 61-year-old passerby Charles McMillian testify at Chauvin's trial last week. Because, after videos of that day caused him to break down in tears, he testified that he pleaded in vain for Floyd to comply before Chauvin got that knee on his neck for the kill. Uh, the point is that comply happens to be the operative word my message conveys. Indeed, the following excerpt from Killing of Michael Brown, as much about resisting arrest as police brutality, on August 12, 2014, explains why I empathised so much with McMillian's grief and feeling of utter fecklessness. And I quote, We've all seen far too many incidents of people resisting arrest, even resting away a policeman's gun and killing him, just because they feared being questioned or arrested, even for something as simple as petty theft. But, for black men in particular, complying with a few simple rules will ensure they survive encounters with the police 99 out of 100 times. There are only five of them, and to aid recall, they form the acronym DODGE, as in bullets. And they are. 1. Do not run. 2. Comply with commands. Specifically, wait for the police to explain why you're being stopped before posing any objections, concerns, or questions you may have. 3. Do not resist being frisked or handcuffed. 4. Get the encounter on video. Wait for the police to approach and make clear you'd like to reach for your phone. That is, avoid making any sudden move that might make some trigger-happy cops day. And... 5. End the encounter civilly. Not only might this spare another black man a racial profiling stop for driving while black, it might make that cop less trigger-happy during his next encounter with a black man. End quote. I have used the word quixotic twice already. This because, when juxtaposed with protests, riots, looting and lawsuits, my message seems so simple it must strike some as naive. Except that, unlike that vicious cycle, my message has not been tried repeatedly and been found wanting time and time again. Of course, I am painfully mindful of the glaring exceptions where black men complied in spirit and to the letter with my dodge rules and still ended up dead. Case in point is the infamous case of Philando Castile. Police shootings in such cases 
provoke understandable nihilism, if not fatalism. But if complying means that 99 Castiles would survive encounters with the police for every one who would not, surely those are better odds than resisting arrest and risking more than a 50% chance of ending up dead. And yes, I am also drawing on my own experience from being stopped by the police for driving while black. This is why I have nothing but contempt for black activists who seem more interested in making martyrs of black men than in saving their lives because their activism has done little more than acculturate young black men to resist arrest, pursuant to some misguided black badge of courage. Not to mention that these activists invariably use the rioting and looting that so often follow these shootings as leverage for the lawyers who chase them to compel financial settlements, as surely as some lawyers chase ambulances to compel the same. Just think for a moment of how often you've seen these activists holding forth in the midst of these tragedies. Because, try as you might, you will not recall any of them ever admonishing other black men to do anything necessary to avoid ending up like their latest martyred cause celebra come Golden Goose. And don't get me started on the curious fact that so many outraged black men seem perfectly willing to cede the role of protecting and serving their communities to white men who seem all too eager to patrol black communities like invading soldiers. Surely there would be fewer of these fatal encounters between black men and white cops if more unemployed black men became police officers and began patrolling their own communities. Yet have you ever heard Revenal Sharpton or any black activist challenge black men to channel their outrage constructively by assuming this responsibility? More to the point, have you ever heard any of them decry the racial shame inherent in the rioting that so often defile the peaceful protests these shootings provoke? Because what the world sees on TV are grown men vandalizing and looting their own neighborhoods while mostly white cops try in vain to restore law and order. Uh, this shameful spectacle even features black nincompoops mugging for media vultures who always seem more interested in hyping disorder for ratings than in reporting events as they unfold. Well, while I'm at it, have you ever seen Sharpton or any black activist leading protests against the epidemic of gun violence that plagues black communities across America? Take, for example, the self-immolating juxtaposition 
as the Chicago Sun-Times reported on June 8, 2020, of 85 people being shot and 18 killed on the very day Chauvin was kneeing the life out of George Floyd. Uh, Mind you, I am not drawing any false equivalency between police brutality and a so-called black-on-black crime. After all, white-on-white crime is even worse. I am merely noting the selective outrage that sees one black man who gets killed by one white cop become a cause celebre. But ten black children who get killed by ten black gangbangers get practically ignored. Why? Because everyone knows that when white cops kill black men, the city pays millions. Whereas, when black men kill black children, the hood pays nothing. But I suspect many of you will think I'm being unduly harsh for insinuating that justice for activists in these cases is as much about getting their cut from civil settlements as anything else. Therefore, you might find more compelling what a bona fide victim of this tried-and-true grift said. Because the February 24, 2015 edition of the New York Post Quotes the daughter of police chokehold victim Eric Garner saying, and I quote, Al Sharpton is all about the Benjamins. End quote. Meanwhile, the litany of multi-million dollar settlements in such cases has done nothing to help black men survive their encounters with the police. Which brings me to the cases of Army Officer Karan Nazario and Dante Wright. Videos of both went viral this week, therefore I'm going to assume you've seen enough of each, and proceed accordingly. With respect to Nazario, foremost I say, thank God the cop in this case did not mistake his gun for pepper spray. That said, it is instructive to note that Nazario initially did what any sensible driver should do. He drove to a well-lit area, which in this case happened to be a gas station, when he noticed cops in his rearview mirror attempting to pull him over. And, as soon as he felt it was safe to stop, he propped up his smartphone to record their encounter. But then, Nazario refused repeated commands to get out of his car. Folks, no matter how confused or afraid this active duty army officer might have been, he had no right to demand an explanation for being stopped before complying with those commands. Uh, For the record, once the police establish probable cause to pull you over, the law requires you to comply 
with their commands. In this case, they had probable cause because Nazario's license plate was not visible. This because his temporary tag was perched up on the tinted rear window. As things played out, Nazario refused over 15 commands to get out of his car. This caused one officer to warn that he was unnecessarily risking a further charge of obstruction of justice and the other officer to literally plead to no avail for Nazario to just get out of the car so they can talk things over. Finally, one of them pepper sprayed him before both forcibly removed and handcuffed him. And the rest is now viral fodder, complete with Nazario filing a million dollar lawsuit and being hailed as a hero for surviving. What the Stanford University Open Policing Project documented is the type of traffic stop over 20 million motorists survive each year without incident. Sure enough, as soon as the officers had him in handcuffs, one of them can be heard, not only explaining why they had probable cause to stop him, but also bemoaning why Nazario insisted on turning what should have been a routine two-minute verbal encounter into such a drawn-out fuss. On the other hand, this video shows just why cops are so friggin' distrusted. I mean, it's disheartening enough that we see that the cop who pepper-sprayed Nazario is himself not only a fellow military veteran, but also a fellow Latino. Yet we see him treating another minority the way many would expect only a racist white cop to. Even worse, though, we see the same cop effectively attempting to extort Nazario by telling him he can either file a complaint and risk ruining his career because he would be placed under arrest on a battery of charges right there and then, or he could let bygones be bygones and get on with his military career with no charges on his record to hamper him. Ironically, he ended this pitch by saying whatever Nazario decides would make no difference to him because it won't affect his life either way. No doubt this because he had the presence of mind to fear that a formal complaint could lead to public scrutiny of every second of this encounter on his and his partner's body cam videos. And, whether legally justified or not, he could clearly sense that the image of him pepper-spraying a black military officer over a simple license tag infraction would incite such public outrage he'd probably lose his job. Well, now his fears have been realized. That fateful traffic stop happened months ago on December 5. The body cam video, pursuant to the lawsuit Nazario decided to file, went viral last weekend. That cop was fired on Monday. 
The most damning thing about this video, however, is not what it showed, but what the cops involved wrote about it. Because their report betrayed the systemic way cops routinely frame arrests, especially of black men, to cover up any mistake or act of brutality they may have committed, and exaggerate any way in which the person they arrested may have resisted. And yet cops wonder why they are so distrusted. Still, I suppose I'm from the Booker T and Malcolm X school of self-reliance, because I cannot overstate how important it is for black men to be seen policing their own neighborhoods. This, instead of being seen, only protesting after these recurring tragedies, especially in protests that end with thugs vandalizing and looting their own neighborhoods. But, apropos of distrust, I proposed measures to impose systemic trust in policing way back when white cops were killing black men during the Obama presidency. For example, in racism worse under Obama, yes, but on December 9, 2014, I urged cities, among other things, to mandate body cameras for all police officers and to establish civilian review boards complete with the power to refer any police shooting to an independent prosecutor. This to effectively police the police, instead of leaving it to the police to police themselves. Please forgive me if this seems like beating a dead horse. I just can't help thinking of the lives that could have been saved if the black men involved had simply complied, instead of resisting arrest. But think also of the many protests, with their attendant riots, we could have been spared, if the cities involved had fully implemented just those two measures I proposed, to impose systemic trust. Anyway... With respect to right, foremost I say, there is simply no excuse for any officer, let alone a 26-year veteran, to mistake a gun for a taser and end up killing someone. That's why I say the female officer in this case deserves whatever consequences she suffers for doing so. And I suspect she knew when she resigned on Tuesday that public outrage was such that she was not only going to be fired, but arrested in due course. Sure enough, she was, less than 24 hours later, on a charge of second-degree manslaughter. Still, there is no denying the very likelihood that this cop would never have made that mistake if Wright had not resisted arrest. And the video clearly shows him doing so in brazen and baffling fashion. Now, 
he too is dead. Frankly, I don't know what else to say, except, for the love of black men, please take a moment to admonish any you know to comply with police commands, to live and sue another day instead of resisting arrest and ending up dead. Uh, to be fair, though, I should acknowledge that Reverend Al Sharpton is in the vanguard of those pushing for policing reform, most notably congressional enactment of the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. It sets national standards for police conduct, including a ban on the chokehold that killed Eric Garner, a ban on the no-knock warrant that led to the killing of Breonna Taylor, a requirement for the use of body and car cameras, and a restriction on the qualified immunity that shields police from civil liability. Still, it is worth noting that the provisions of this bill are all aimed at reforming, not defunding, the police. But I have debunked that woke notion enough in commentaries like defund the police, uh, most don't mean it, but enough do, on June 15, 2020. Therefore, I see no point in dignifying it with any further comment. But trust me, you do not want to live in a community where thugs have good reason to believe. They can disrespect the police with impunity, or that the officers responding to their crimes will probably be social workers carrying laptops instead of cops carrying guns. I support this bill wholeheartedly. I am just mindful that it does nothing to address what is so often the triggering event that causes the death of black men in their encounters with police. That, of course, is the decision of black men to resist arrest. In fact, I am reliably informed in this regard by no less an authority than Charles Ramsey, the former commissioner of the Philadelphia PD and former chief of the Metro PD of Washington, D.C. Uh, perhaps you've seen him on CNN bemoaning that no new law or additional police training will likely prevent these shootings because, according to Ramsey, police officers across the country have been receiving training to de-escalate such situations for decades, clearly to no avail. Hell, the 26-year vet who killed Dante Wright was herself a trainer of police who was on a training run with a rookie trainee when she killed him. Yet, we have no less a person than Vice President Kamala Harris, 
joining the chorus of those calling for the police to be better trained, instead of admonishing black men to stop resisting arrest. If that does not meet Einstein's famous definition of crazy, nothing does. I am a black man. I too am outraged by these police shootings. But outrage will do nothing to help the next black man survive his encounter with the police. This is why I urge you to ask yourself this threshold question. Given all the videos you've seen of these encounters, how many black men do you think would still be alive if they had simply complied? I submit the honest answer should compel us to plead with black men to simply comply during future encounters, more than incite us to vent outrage over the martyrdom of yet another of them. Oh, that said, let me hasten to assert that nothing I have ever written on this epidemic can be fairly construed as saying that non-compliance with police commands justifies deadly force. I've heard too many otherwise solid lawyers make that straw man argument. The fact is, however, that we've seen time and again non-compliance end in death for far too many black men. So to my black brothers, I plead again, please comply to live and even soon another day. That's it. Thank you for listening and until the next Talking Opinions, goodbye.